Hi everyone, this is Alicia Halliday and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Now, don't let the title of DSM-5, Where Are We Now, fool you. We'll be talking about the DSM-5, but also about diagnosis in cousins and a new tool to assess kids at home using clinical measures that before could only be used in research clinics. This tool is actually great and I'm thrilled it was finally published so I could talk about it. But first, let's start with the lead, the DSM-5, five years later. In 2013, the American Psychiatric Association published a new version of what is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM. It is the how-to guide for psychologists and psychiatrists in how they take symptoms in an individual and categorize them into different disorders. For example, does someone have an eating disorder or schizophrenia or both? Do they have depression or anxiety or both? This needs to be done every once in a while, honestly. It needs to kind of be refreshed. With regards to autism, for example, in the DSM-4, the last version, it had Rett syndrome lumped in with autism. Now we know now that while girls have a higher prevalence of autism than expected, we also now know that they're a completely different syndrome and should be listed out separately. One of the more controversial things that was done, if you can remember, is that the authors removed the subcategories of Asperger's disorder and pervasive developmental disorder, otherwise specified, or PDD, and put everything into autism spectrum disorder. So instead of there being multiple diagnoses within autism, there was just the one. This got mixed reviews from the community. Let's back up and let me tell you the reason that this was done was that a research study showed that despite really well-meaning, really well-trained clinicians giving instructions on how to diagnose different categories of autism and different subcategories, it was not happening consistently. What was known in Asperger's in one clinic was known as PDD-NOS in another clinic. Using even the same criteria, some people were given an autism diagnosis and some were given Asperger's or PDD. Now, scientifically talking, this means that the subcategories were not useful and in a practical sense that it meant that services received were affected. But the community was rightly concerned and some people with Asperger's didn't even want to give away the term Asperger's because they felt special and it felt like it was differentiating them from those with autism. And some people actually felt that they might lose their services and accommodations. So the answer to the first issue was, we encouraged everyone to call themselves whatever they want. They can call themselves an Aspie or someone with PDD. Autism is a diagnostic term. And to the second about losing services, we said, come, let's wait and see. An insurance company was told that they could not bump anyone who had a diagnosis out of their current diagnosis and that services should not be lost. But while I was at Autism Speaks, we did reach out to the community and tell them to contact us if we ever happened to see this so that we could intervene. It only happened a couple of times in the year uh, that I was still at Autism Speaks after this happened. And in both cases, it was simply a misunderstanding of the interpretation of the DSM. Anyway, there have been dozens of research studies so far examining whether or not people with Asperger's or PDD-NOS previously would miss the diagnosis of autism using the DSM-5. 
Recently, a group of researchers at Columbia University and Stanford got together and combined all these studies and did a systematic review and meta-analysis to see if one, did DSM-5 reduce diagnostic rates of autism? Number two, if that was the case, were there any subcategories particularly affected? And three, how did these new changes affect the diagnosis of social communication disorder? Social communication disorder, or SCD, was created so that those who had symptoms of autism but didn't quite meet the diagnostic threshold could receive some sort of diagnosis and receive services. So a meta-analysis and systematic review was conducted. The systematic review means that not all studies were included. It was just that those that met certain quality criteria were included. And it showed that, yes, people in certain subcategories like Asperger's and PDD-NOS were less likely to receive a diagnosis under DSM-5 compared to what they were given in DSM-4. There was also an increase in the number of social communication disorder diagnoses to compensate for that, but really not enough to explain how many would have received a diagnosis of Asperger's or PDD-NOS. So the increase in social communication disorder did not go up enough to account for all the people who would have received Asperger's or PDD-NOS and didn't. I want to point out that there was a great variability in all these studies, which is why a meta-analysis, which averaged them all and weights them by how big the studies were, was important. It does suggest that we need another diagnosis or a modification of social communication disorder to ensure people are captured accurately. So the DSM-5 was more specific. It had a higher specificity rating, so people with autism who had autism were actually getting diagnosed. And it didn't just eliminate things, it added things. Things like sensory issues and hypersensitivity to sound and noise and light were included so that those things could be captured in an evaluation. Now, given that it's more specific, the DSM-5 does point out the need to reconsider what autism is and what it is not. So for the people who do not meet the criteria for autism, there needs to be something else. That needs to be a focus of research. So speaking of diagnosis, ASF is always interested in the understanding of the likelihood of diagnosis in family members. Through the Baby Siblings Research Consortium, scientists know that the rate of diagnosis goes from about 1 in 59 in the general population up to 1 in 5 for those with an older sibling. John Constantino has estimated what this rate is for half-siblings with at least one biological parent. And now, thanks to a collaboration which pools data across Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Australia, and Israel, we now know about cousins. This all sounds very academic, but ASF gets this question a lot, and we have the limited ability to answer. The question is, my niece has a diagnosis. What's my child's probability of a diagnosis? Or my sister is telling me her son is not following her gaze. Should she be worried? As an aside, don't worry about numbers when you see autism warning signs. Just go to a pediatrician. But the answer about cousins is yes, there is an increased probability of a diagnosis. Of course, that probability of diagnosis is changed by gender, but here's what they found. When they looked at the first-degree siblings, those are the baby siblings, the rate was anywhere between an 8 times higher and a 17 times higher probability of a diagnosis compared to those with no family history. 
Part of the eight versus 17 is that they looked at two cohorts, one where the first child was diagnosed with something called childhood autism and the other with a diagnosis of ASD. Remember, ASD includes the different subcategories like Asperger's and PDD-NOS, whereas childhood autism or CA is considered to be the most severe, capturing the most severe cases of autism using something called the International Classification of Disabilities or ICD. So the rate is eight times higher in siblings of those with autism and 17 times higher in siblings of those with childhood autism. The recurrence was actually higher in girl-girl siblings than it is in boy-boy siblings. This is interesting in itself. It means that if the girl had an autism diagnosis, the second girl was the most likely to receive a diagnosis compared to boys, where if the boy was getting the first diagnosis, the probability of a second diagnosis was lower. Still high, like six, but not as high as girl-girl. This points out the higher family liability in families with a girl and also points out a protective effect in girls. That's important, but I think listeners already knew about that. Add it to the list. So what about cousins and cousins? It's about two times higher. Remember, siblings share 50% of their genetics, but cousins share about 12.5% of their genetics. Now, these numbers won't match numbers from the Baby Siblings Research Consortium because they use different diagnostic measures, and that's okay. What I think is important is that cousins do show a higher risk than those with no family history of a diagnosis, and this could help families in a lot of ways. Forget family planning. Think about how parents perceive early warning signs. Okay, so finally, one last study. I don't talk about technology as much as I'd like to for families, because really there's been very little to talk about in the scientific literature until now. Thanks to a research collaboration between many researchers and scientists and Janssen Pharmaceuticals, the earliest data around a tool to use families to track and record behaviors has been published. This tool is called Jake, the Janssen Autism Knowledge Engine. The Janssen Autism Knowledge Engine, which I will call Jake from now on, is a clinical research outcomes assessment system It was developed to more sensitively measure treatment outcomes and identify subpopulations in autism spectrum disorder. It actually is three parts. So one is called MyJake, and it's a web and mobile application for use by caregivers and clinicians to log symptoms, record treatments, track progress, and gather medical information. The second is called Jake Sense. And this is using biosensors and tasks designed to detect and monitor changes in experimental biological markers. And then finally, there's Jake Stream. And this is a system that's designed to collect, time, synchronize, and process data from MyJake and JakeSense. Now, when I say research biosensor, It's the daytime biosensor wristband, and it's commercially available as a biosensor that records things like skin surface temperature, blood volume pulse, and heart rate and heart rate variability. It also looks at activity as a measurement for restlessness and sleep. In addition to using Jake at home, people were able to come in and use Jake for lab-based biomarkers like brain activity, attention, facial expression analysis, and heart function. So what did Jake do really well? Well, 
My Jake was effective in engaging caregivers during the study and successfully captured data encompassing a broad range of things like medical, developmental, educational, and psychological aspects of autism. The website and the mobile apps were used by caregivers throughout the study. They were prompted by MyJake to complete different forms and different questionnaires, and they used the web application pretty successfully. They, for the most part, found it easy to use, helpful, and of interest, again, even outside the context of the research study. From the Jake sensor perspective, it was great except for the electrodermal activity, and that may be removed. It's currently being used in a lot of studies and it isn't perfect, but it could be a feasible way of collecting behavioral, parent-reported, and biological information in real time in a number of settings. This could be important for research measures, and it also could be important for things like predicting a seizure or predicting a meltdown. The ultimate goal of this is to use it as a complementary outcome measures for studies that examine interventions and treatments for certain symptoms. One of the other goals is to help differentiate out the different types of autism. So for example, which behavioral and biological features group together and how. There was only 136 people in this study, so that wasn't entirely possible this time, but it will be the focus in future studies. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.